The scripture reading today comes from the book of Matthew 5, 9 through 10. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then from Matthew 5, 38 through 47. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard it said that it was, um, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he who makes his son rise on the evil one also makes it rise on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same thing? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love. So, uh... This morning's sermon is on peacemaking as opposed to strife. Um, peacemaking and strife are two very different answers to the same question. Uh, what do you do with the hurt in your life? What do you do when your bottled up dad blows up at you in anger? What do you do when your boss in front of everyone gives you an unfair cutting critique? What do you do when your brother knocks down the tower you had just been so long building up? What do you do when you ask your spouse for the 10th time to take out the trash? It's overflowing. The baby is eating it off the floor. And they come over and they press it down a little bit and say, Hey, look, there's a little room at the top here. We're totally fine. What do you do when you're deeply betrayed? When you're harmed so badly that you know it'll take more than a lifetime to heal from it? What do we do with the hurt in our lives is what this beatitude is about, and particularly um, what do you do with the one who hurt you? Do you try to make strife or do you try to make peace? So strife is typically the world's answer to this problem. Um, it's an, an eye for an eye played out in personal relationships. So if, if you hurt me, I will hurt you back. Withdraw from me, I will withdraw from you. Betray me, I will betray you. The Bible synonyms for strife are quarreling, uh, divisiveness, vindictiveness, and malice. Strife is the activity we often see on social media, especially around election season, uh, coming up here soon. Um, it's the activity of many of our cable news channels, even the plot of most of our movies and TV shows. We love to watch people fighting. Strife can be entertaining and very tempting, but it comes with a cost. Uh, strife is a cause of many a div divorce between two people who once loved each other with everything in them, who can no longer be in the same room because of strife. Uh, strife is the cause of many a friendship ending, many employees quitting or losing their jobs, many whole companies going under, bands breaking up, 
because they couldn't work near each other anymore due to arguing and fighting. Strife is often the causes of churches splitting in two, uh, the body of Christ being ripped into pieces, doing irreparable damage to the witness of Jesus because Christians couldn't see eye to eye regarding something like what instrument should be on the stage. Strife was also tragically the cause of many of the wars of history. Countless lives of young men and women taken violently from the world, leaving behind widows and orphans, not because of a noble cause, but because of quarreling between two monarchs or two groups of people. Strife is, is everywhere. It's constantly on the world stage, constantly in our country, in our families, in our marriages, in our friendships, at our workplace, and at our schools. And I wonder, uh, do you have any relationships that no longer exist for you because of strife? The, the Bible and the book of James tells us why strife exists in our lives. It says in James 4.1, uh, what causes quarrels, quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. So according to the Bible, the strife out there between people comes from the strife that's in here. The inner turmoil of the divided, sinful heart. In other words, the, the human heart, your heart was made to be at peace with God but is instead at war with him. It was made to be focused on one love, on God, but now it's torn between many competing loves, competing desires, competing idols. And since it's at war with God and itself, it has to lead to war out there with other people. So that leads us to our beatitude today. Uh, Jesus says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The term uh, peacemaker is only used once right here in the Bible. Uh, the Greek dictionary defines it as making parts into a whole. So peacemaking biblically is taking something that's been broken into separate pieces and putting it back together again. It's putting parts of a person's divided heart back together, putting parts of the body of Christ back together, putting parts of family back together, parts of the world back together. It's making something that's been broken into a whole again. And this is not uh, talking about the kind of pseudo-peacemaking that you might have run across in your life. Like uh, the rules of many families, uh, like don't rock the boat, uh, let's just sweep it under the rug, or we just don't talk about that. Or if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say it at all. The world is filled with this kind of pseudo-peacemaking, which really creates pseudo-community. It creates cordial but distant relationships. And all these pseudo-strategies cannot really make anything truly whole because they refuse to acknowledge the real hurt and brokenness. They sweep the broken pieces under the rug. They paint over the cracks. They simply agree to pretend like the breaks aren't there when the breaks are actually tearing everyone apart inside. So Jesus here is talking about something very different. It's making something actually whole. And that's what the sermon's about this morning. It's true peacemaking. So I want to ask Jesus this morning uh, three things about peacemaking. Uh, first, what does true peacemaking look like? Two, how do we become true peacemakers? And then three, what about when true peace doesn't come? So what does true peacemaking making look like? How do we become true peacemakers? And what about when true peace doesn't come? And the third point, we're going to talk about the final beatitude, 
which states that kind of as we seek peace, there are some situations where we will not find it. Um, and so uh, we'll look at that as well. So, but before we dive in, um, let me pray for us. God, um, you know well enough that our lives are often full of strife. Uh, strife that takes so much from us and the others that we love around us. Uh, please give us your wisdom this morning. Give us your power this morning. Uh, mold us, Lord, into peacemakers that we may be sons of you. Amen. So first, uh, what does true peacemaking look like? Um, and that's the second passage that you have in your bulletin if you want to look with me. This is later on, the ser- later on in the Sermon on the Mount, the same sermon. Um, Jesus gives a few practical examples of peacemaking. It says, Matthew 5, verse 38. Uh, he says, You have heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So in personal relationships, this posture is the posture of strife. If you hurt me, I hurt you back. But I say to you, do not resist the one who's evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Not not any peace going on back there, folks. Uh, uh, All right, a slap was an insult in their day, a painful insult, a normal kind of way of insulting somebody. And uh, a slap on the right cheek would have been a backhanded slap. Uh, which is doubly insulting. Um, And Jesus says the posture of peacemaking in this instance is to not slap back, but to turn the other cheek. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. In the ancient world, uh, they would wear two layers over their underwear. And Jesus is saying, if someone takes your top layer, your tunic, go ahead and give him your bottom layer too, your cloak. And clothing for them was expensive, and you didn't have many tunics and cloaks like we do today. So this was costly. In verse 41, if if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Roman soldiers in their day would often make Jews carry their bags for one mile, and Jews had to. That was the rule. But it was super inconvenient and degrading uh, for a Jewish person. And Jesus is saying, hey, when they ask you, go with them the one mile and also give them another of your own free will. So in each of these scenarios, uh, Jesus is describing hurtful things being done to you. And there's much reason in the world's eyes to respond with some strife, with an eye for an eye. But instead, Jesus says, uh, turn the other cheek, go the extra mile, give the second layer. And notice a few things about these responses. Uh, First is that there's zero amount of outward aggression. There's not a single ounce of defensiveness, vindictiveness, revenge, ego, quarrelsomeness in the face of being taken advantage of and clear insults. Second, uh, notice it's not, there's not any passive aggressiveness in the responses either. It's not, uh, fine, I'll give you my tunic. Fine, I'll begrudgingly go with you one mile, all the while hating you internally because I can't really find another way out of the situation. So there's not outward aggression, there's not passive aggression, but what we do see is this. Oh, soldier, you need help with your luggage? Where do you need to go? I'll take it, uh, not just the one mile, but I'll take it to your final destination. I'm happy to help. Oh, you need clothes? So much that you would try to take mine? Let me also give you my second layer, take this too. Oh, you insulted me? Let me give you the opportunity to repair to do something different with this cheek. Maybe a kiss this time. 
In these examples, hurt is done, but in the response, strife is replaced with self-giving love. Strife is replaced with self-giving love. Jesus summarizes all this in verse 43. He says, You've heard it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Love your enemies. This is one of the more radical things Jesus ever said. Um, Very controversial. Uh, Now these are examples from the ancient world about slaps and tunics. But I'm wondering if Jesus was ministering today, what might these examples look like for us? So imagine this. Um, Your in-law is the worst person ever. I know that might be hard to envision for some of you, uh, but just go with me. Uh, Your in-law is a hard person for you. Um, He's mean to you, uh, mean to others. He's controlling, uh, loves giving you unhelpful life advice, uh, and worst of all, has the opposite political beliefs of you uh, and lets you know over most holiday meals. He's posting on social media all the time and tagging you in his posts. Here's a version of Jesus' radical commands. At the Labor Day cookout tomorrow, if he tries to take one hour of your time towards engaging you over his politics, give him two hours instead. If he doesn't listen to your perspective, listen twice as hard to his. If he says something cutting or insulting to you in the process, do not insult him back. You can be honest and say, hey, that hurts. It's not okay to say that. But then turn the other cheek and give him a chance to fix it. Give him your cloak too. Show care and concern for his needs in the process of that conversation. No outward hostility. No passive aggressive statements. Do not be overcome by evil, but do not return evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your enemy. Enemy can be not just an in-law, but someone very close to you. Uh, even if they just feel like an enemy for a minute. Jesus' examples would also include your spouse. If it feels like your spouse didn't listen to you at all, then it would be you returning listening to them in response could be to uh, repair first with a friend when they were the clear offender. It could be uh, being there for someone when they weren't there for you. Jesus is saying when hurt is done, don't respond with strife, but respond with self-giving love. Now, here are a few few important caveats because this can be, uh, turning the other cheek can be really misunderstood. Um, Turning the other cheek cannot mean... uh, not speaking bold truth to someone when they are wrong. Uh, Remember, Jesus in the Gospels spoke a lot of bold truth to the Pharisees, the Romans, the religious leaders, even his own disciples. Um, So it can't mean uh, not doing that. It can't mean also not expressing righteous anger, not seeking justice, uh, because we see Jesus do both of those. Remember him turning over tables in the temple. Um, It cannot mean not drawing healthy boundaries. Jesus commands boundaries for us in many places, as we're going to look at actually in detail in the third point. Um, And turning the other cheek cannot even mean not offending people or making enemies. Because Jesus himself offended a lot of people and made a lot of enemies. He got killed by them. So somehow, um, you are to be a peacemaker, turn the other cheek, and seek truth, express anger, seek justice, Uh, draw boundaries, and make enemies. So here's the secret to all that. Um, Actually, for Jesus, each of those actions are actually expressions of what being a true biblical peacemaker looks like. Think about it. If Jesus wants to make the world truly whole, 
And if he really loves his enemies, he must rock the boat. He cares enough about them to rock their boat. He must be honest about the cracks and the leaks in the boat. If he cared less, he could sweep it under the rug. He came for true peace, not the semblance of it. So honesty is what his peacemaking entails. And that's what true peacemaking looks like. It's returning self-giving love for our hurt. If you want to learn how to do this better and how to get more examples of what this looks like, uh, Jesus gives us a huge hint in these next verses, uh, which will lead us into our next point. Look what he says in in verse 44. Uh, He says, Love your enemies so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So Jesus says, look at how God the Father treats his enemies every day. So I want to I take a minute and I want to actually look at that. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from a pretty outspoken enemy of God, a guy named uh, Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins, some of you may be familiar, is a, is a British public speaker, a writer, biologist. Um, he said this about God in one of his books. Um, the God of the Bible, God of the Old Testament, is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. That right there is an insult, folks. Now, is that a true insult? Well, uh, not according to any of the writers who wrote the book where Dawkins is getting his info. Writers who loved and worshipped this God. It's also not true according to God himself, who says he's best described as merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Exodus 34, 6. So imagine someone who uh, was saying those things about you and, and that they happened to be dead wrong. And imagine they went around telling everyone that, and people believed them, and suddenly a lot of friends that you had were growing a little more distant from you as a result of that. How would you feel towards the person saying those things to you? How would you treat them if you ran into them? Jesus is saying here that God hears these insults every day from many people, like Richard Dawkins. And each morning, as God hears those insults, Richard Dawkins wakes up with God himself holding his atoms together. He wakes up with his heart beating in a comfy, soft bed, in a safe, nice, probably pretty large home, with a pretty full bank account, with a fridge with milk and fruit and fresh veggies, with the smell of bacon and eggs cooking on the stove, the sun warmly shining on him, the rain falling around him with flowers in his garden, mature trees spreading their branches in his yard, with gift upon gift upon gift, actively given from the very God that Dawkins hates with all of his being. This is how the peacemaker God treats his enemies every day, Jesus says. Because God is not vindictive. He's not bloodthirsty or petty or unjust or unforgiving. There is no ounce of strife in his being. God is the ultimate peacemaker towards us. And God loves his enemies so that his kindness might one day lead them to repentance. That through his kindness, he might make Richard Dawkins whole again. And more than that, we know that God loved his enemies so much that he gave his only son that he might save them. 
God loves his enemies so much that Jesus went through suffering, death, and hell to make his very enemies whole. And as he did it, they spit on him. They stripped him naked. They mocked him. And he responded with only self-giving love. God forgive them. They know not what they do. That's our model for true peacemaking. And the more you meditate on God's daily peacemaking gifts to you, and God's once-for-all peacemaking on the cross, the more creative of a peacemaker you will become. That's what peacemaking looks like for us, the self-giving love in response to hurt like God. Now, I know what you're thinking. Um, Harrison, this is God we're talking about. I'm not God. To be honest, uh, the hurt I'm thinking about is too deep for this sort of love. Especially in the moment when I feel hurt, it's near impossible for me to turn the other cheek. I go into fight or flight mode, baby. And that leads us to the obvious next question. How do we become true peacemakers like this? How do we do it? This is where we need to look deeper at the promise in this beatitude. Uh, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Then that same promise shows up in the next verse, remember, that we saw. as Jesus says, love your enemies, that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In both cases, Jesus ties our peacemaking closely to our connection with our Father God. Our peacemaking actually confirms for us that we are God's children. And that actually, that holds the key to how we become true peacemakers. So for many of your personal qualities, uh, actually, they come from your parents. These qualities are in your genes, your DNA. And at some point in your life, a gene turns on and you express the information that was passed down to you. Uh, for instance, you might have two parents with red hair. One day, as a child, people start to notice, wait a second, that's red hair on your head. You have red hair because your parents had red hair. Now, according to Scripture, um, your response to the hurt in your life is passed down from your parents. It's spiritually genetic. This is exactly why a lot of our human peacemaking strategies, like don't rock the boat or sweep it under the rug, don't really work for us in making true peace. They can't work because you're fighting genetics, something you can't actually change. When you go to the doctor, remember you have to fill out all these forms, so many forms, and one of which is what diseases run in your family. I never know what diseases run in my family. Um, they ask you about heart disease, asthma, diabetes, various cancers, and your parents and grandparents. Why do they ask you that? If your grandparents and parents had heart disease, you inherited a high risk of heart disease in your genes. One thing I do know is that my dad had a heart attack around age 60. Survived it, thankfully, but the reality is I can exercise well, I can eat well, I can take omega-3 fatty acids like he did before his heart attack. But because of genetics, my siblings and I are at a high risk of the exact same thing happening to us. It's in my DNA. I can't change that. The Bible says it doesn't matter what peacekeeping strategy you come up with. The strife, the strife is in your DNA. Your grandparents had it. Your parents had it. And now you have it. You can try not rocking the boat, but you ain't going to be able to hold it off. Not for you. So here's the only answer. You need a new heart. And you need new genes. You need a different parent. You need to be born again. Become a son of that peacemaking God I just described to you. You need his genes. And then peacemaking for you, if you get that, won't just be possible. It'll be instinctual for you. 
The promise of the Beatitudes is that if you do start real peacemaking, if you start turning the other cheek and giving the tunic and the cloak, giving the tough in-law two hours of selfless, genuine listening and care, then it's going to be a confirmation. There will be heads turning in heaven saying there's only way, the only way she could have done that is that she must have the DNA of God in her genes. She shall be called a daughter of God. So for the Christians in here who may already believe I've been born again, this beatitude is a test. Is your life filled with strife? Is true peacemaking, is offering self-giving love in response to hurt, is that even possible for you with your spouse, with your family, with the strangers you talk to on the internet? If it's not possible, Jesus would have you go back and reconsider. Have you been given the DNA of this God? Have you been born again of the true peacemaker? Here's the thing. We have about as much control over being born again by God as we did over our first birth with our earthly parents. Jesus says, like the wind goes wherever it wants. You don't know where it came from, where it's going. So it is with everyone who's been born of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's the one who does this birthing. You just receive it. But Jesus says, Ask and you shall receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Truly I say to you, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. So is today a good day for you to ask him to be born again? That you might have the inner turmoil James spoke of quieted that you might have your heart made whole again so that you might be able to turn and help others to become whole again too. And if you suspect you already have such a heart, confirm it today with an act of true peacemaking towards someone who hurt you. So that's how we become true peacemakers is through being born again, receiving the peacemaking genetics of God himself. So we saw what peacemaking looks like, uh, self-giving love in response to hurt, how we become peacemakers uh, through becoming a child of God, and then lastly, um, what about when true peace doesn't come? I wanted to mention this because the final beatitude shockingly speaks of the disciples' peacemaking efforts leading to a sustained lack of peace with others. Uh, their peacemaking efforts elves are leading to this lack of peace. Look, look, at, look at the beatitude again. Um, I'm going to read verse 11 too, which is not in there, but you can just hear it. Um, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. On my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So Jesus assumes in the very next beatitude, when his disciples are seeking peace, Peace will not happen, even as a direct result of them seeking the peace, and as a direct result of them being tied to the peacemaker, Jesus. And then uh, Jesus also says more strikingly, five chapters later, I know some of y'all might have been thinking about this, Matthew ten thirty four. Do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. 
Somehow, God is a peacemaker, and Jesus is bringing the sword. Jesus here, in both of the Beatitude and Matthew 10, is, is pointing out what I talked about earlier in this sermon, that he didn't come to, as we might say, keep the peace. But rather, he came to rock the boat because the boat is in pieces and it's sinking. And it needs to be more than rocked to be made whole again. Jesus came to throw back the rug where all the broken pieces have been swept under. He came to find them all and remake the pottery anew. Jesus came for true peace, not just a semblance of peace. And when he speaks about bringing a sword, he's talking about giving up the semblance of peace to pursue the real thing. And he calls us actually to do the same. And there are three instances specifically that he mentions uh, where our true peacemaking will and should disrupt a semblance of peace um, around us. And the first one, uh, like he says in this beatitude, is persecution. Uh, Jesus is saying, when you go about sharing my message of peace, some will not receive it. In fact, because of your identification with me, they will start to dislike you. They may revile you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely for years, not because of anything you've done wrong, but because of who you associate with. And no matter how many times you turn your cheek, how many extra miles you walk with them, true peace between you and them will not come because of me. Jesus is saying, peacemaker, you must still share my peace with them. You must still seek to reconcile them to me. You must seek to make their heart whole for their sake. Do not settle on a semblance of peace. Rock their boat wisely with deep care and concern. And one day, you might find the real thing with them. They might find the real thing with me. It's worth it. So that's the first instance is persecution in the midst of our witness as we're sharing Jesus' peace with others. The second one that he mentions is uh, church discipline. This is when a professing Christian and member of the church is confronted with an unrepentant, sinful pattern or a dangerous false teaching. And Jesus tells us later in Matthew, Matthew 18, 15 through 19, he gives us a, a kind of a way of responding. He says, first confront them with one person. If they don't repent, confront them with multiple people. If they still don't repent, confront them with the whole church. If they still don't repent, Jesus says, Treat them like you guys do Gentiles and tax collectors. Which meant uh, avoid that person. The church throughout history has called this process, uh, this last move, excommunication. And it definitely shakes up the semblance of peace. Jesus and Paul both explain this concept in detail and they make it clear that this is a true peacemaking strategy. It seeks the good of the unrepentant person. How? It gives them a taste of the true consequences of their actions while they still have the chance to correct those actions. It uh, gives them a taste of life apart from God and his people before their unrepentant sin sends them away from God forever. The hope is that they will repent in that process. Jesus cares too much about them to sweep the broken pieces under the rug. He rocks their boat for the sake of saving that person on it. So he commands us, we must, as true peacemakers, carry that process out when those situations arise with wisdom, trepidation, and great care and concern. So that's another uh, place where uh, peace doesn't come for us is church discipline. 
And a third uh, is similar to church discipline, slightly different, is Jesus is clear there are people in a fallen world who are intentionally destructive to those around them. Jesus talks about wolves in sheep's clothing who come purposefully to prey on and hurt his flock. And this is the final instance he gives us where peacemakers are to break up a semblance of peace to protect the flock. Uh, Proverbs 22.10 says, Drive out a scoffer and strife will go out, quarreling and abuse will cease. So three very uncomfortable instances where our true peacemaking leads us to have to rock the boat and create a temporary lack of peace in search of the real thing. And so here is a command from the Apostle Paul in light of these things. He says in Romans 12, 18, he says, Live peaceably with all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. Live peaceably with all, if possible, so far as it depends on you. So you can't control your enemy, but you can control yourself. Are you seeking true peace? And this fills out, I think, for us what a true peacemaker is. It's our self-giving love in response to hurt, like we see from God and from Jesus on the cross. It uh, comes from us being born again from God, inheriting God's spiritual DNA. And true peacemakers like God must sometimes give up the semblance of peace to seek the real thing. I want to close with this. Uh, A a good friend of mine in seminary uh, called me one day to come over and sit down with him. Uh, Jordan and I had gotten married maybe a year before this. And we were pretty excited about each other. Uh, Spent a lot of time together during that year, Jordan and I. And um, there's some friends I kind of forgot about during that time. Young love is a powerful thing, folks. Uh, And this uh, friend called me over to share uh, a hurt. He said it felt like we had grown distant in the past year. That I hadn't been there for him. That he was losing me as a friend. Especially after a long season where he had been there for me a lot. He was right about that. Uh, I was slipping away. In the midst of his feeling that hurt, this man didn't choose strife. He didn't withdraw in anger. He didn't talk behind my back. He didn't say passive-aggressive things like, it's not like I ever see you anymore. (laughs) Instead, in response to my year-long withdrawal, he pursued me. In response to me not being there for him, he was there for me. In response to his hurt, He gave me an act of self-giving love. He shook up the semblance of peace that I had about our relationship. He was honest and firm and yet also deeply caring about how he spoke to me that day. And I couldn't see his heart, but I can say it looked a lot like how God the Father treats his enemies every day. In fact, I suspect the DNA of God is in my friend, Jacob. And the outcome of his peacemaking was true peace, not the semblance of it for us. We went deeper with each other rather than get more distant as a result of that conversation. And we're actually going to Charleston to visit them next weekend. So do you want to be like God today? Who might you need to pursue true peace with? Don't wait. Look to Jesus to lead you there. So this ends our series on the Beatitudes. And next week, uh, get excited because we got the Proverbs coming up. Amen.